This is an ABC podcast. So when I open TikTok, I typically see someone shooting a day in the life video, a corporate girl who's grabbing her morning coffee on the go. And the next TikTok, I could be exposed to ducks. And the next thing you know, trauma story, incredibly um, painful story of someone going through a difficult event. And then next thing you know, I could be seeing a TikTok about the latest Batman movie that's coming out. And does it make you wonder, like, who you are? That it, the algorithm is like, she likes day in the life, ducks, mental health <laughs> and Batman. Yes. This is ABC technology reporter Ariel Bogle, and she's chatting to Grace Chen. I think it'd be so interesting if someone, like, analysed the TikToks I'm exposed to and see how close it really is to, like, my personality. My phone thinks that I am... Yeah, boiled down, I'm just a duck lover who enjoys listening to traumatic stories. Grace is a first-year psychology student, so she's interested in how we think and feel. And the popular video app TikTok seems to know that. As someone who is comes from an immigrant background, naturally the algorithm has also picked that up. So I see a lot of TikToks of um, other Asian girls who have um, grown up in an environment that can be quite repressive at times. So I've seen a lot of story times of people discussing difficult relationship with parents and stuff like that. And normally it's being discussed in a way that is quite humorous. And I think it's reflective of the fact that as Gen Z, we like to share our experiences with humor, almost as a bit of a coping mechanism in order to discuss quite traumatic stories. There's that word again, traumatic. Trauma. In terms of trauma content, I've seen quite a broad range. I've seen stories related to domestic violence, people who've um, been in mental institutions, who've had very serious conditions such as anorexia and bulimia. And I've also seen many powerful, uplifting survival stories, people who now want to use TikTok as a platform to share their experiences. If you spend much time on social media, you're likely to see and hear language that was once limited to the psychologist's couch. I think trauma has become this kind of buzzword that explains everything to people. You know, that if you're feeling disconnected from the world, that it's because of something that happened in your past or that the world has done to you. But I think it, again, becomes this kind of oversimplification where instead of discussing what's actually happened in our lives or the actual material conditions of our existence, we end up abstracting it all into a diagnosis or just calling it trauma or kind of using trauma as an excuse to not explore what we actually mean. We don't want people to identify as their trauma and we would rather that people live full and functional lives despite their trauma. And so while it's it's great that someone has felt validated through a TikTok video, uh, we don't want people to cling on to that. You're listening to All in the Mind, I'm Sana Kadar. Today, ABC technology reporter Ariel Bogle takes a look at how trauma took over the internet. Them being that observant isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could be sticking around as a benefit or superpower. The emotional meaning of the event gets cut off. You have gastrointestinal issues, you have migraines, you have 
new sleep disorder. I feel like the pandemic definitely resulted in me spending more time on TikTok and also seeing more mental health content. Grace spent most of her final years of high school inside the house, away from teachers, from friends, and like many other people, she was online a lot of the time. Yeah, during the pandemic, definitely saw TikToks of people feeling very trapped, I guess. It was quite a shared phenomenon of being stuck in your house all day. And naturally, our mind goes to quite dark places when that happens. Alongside the ducks and dancers, she started to see people sharing really personal stories on the app, often set to clips of popular music. There's another one about generational trauma that I'm looking at right now. Um, So she's this girl that has grown up in, I would say, quite a strict Asian household. And she talks about how she's very grateful that when she was younger, her, I guess, her mother didn't beat her so hard. And then we see people in the comments almost making light of the situation. I'm not sure if it's making fun of the situation or people just resonating and using humour as a way to cope with their own traumas. The word trauma has become culturally dominant over the past few years. Books exploring trauma, like The Body Keeps the Score, have returned to bestseller lists, perhaps boosted by the pandemic. Essays in The New Yorker have railed against endless trauma plots in popular culture. And on apps like TikTok, which already encourage confession and intimacy from their users, the word can feel omnipresent. And it can attract a lot of engagement. The hashtag TraumaTalk alone has more than 2.4 billion views. The reason that I, I kind of got into this research area was because I had um, friends sending me TikTok videos and um, they, were, they were kind of asking me whether or not I thought that they had you know, a certain diagnosis because they had seen TikTok videos where people were explaining symptoms related to specific disorders. Dr. Alex Woolard is a research fellow at Telethon Kids who studies childhood trauma. So did any of the friends that send you TikToks questioning whether they had a particular diagnosis, did any of them actually turn out to have one? No, I think the videos were so general that we kind of would have a chat about it and they realised that they're very common experiences. So none of them actually went to get a formal diagnosis. TikTok is a difficult app to study. It's a bit of a black box, but it's clear mental health is a popular topic. Dr. Woolard and her team are looking at how trauma is discussed on the platform. So what I see a lot of on TikTok is people kind of conflating trauma and traumatic stress. That is, a set of reactions that can develop in people who have been through a traumatic event. So they, I see a lot of, you know, this this horrible thing happened and this I've, I've faced this type of adversity and I have trauma. And it's not entirely accurate. Um, I, I think people really need to understand that experiencing a traumatic event does not implicitly mean that you will have a traumatic stress response. It's very different for different people. To be diagnosed with traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder, it's not enough to have simply experienced something horrific. Now, I think what people normally think about with trauma is that if you've experienced a certain event, like a a natural disaster or war or or violence of some sort, that you automatically go on to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's not the case. So sometimes that will happen 
And there are certainly different types of uh, traumatic events that are you're more likely to go on to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. So if you think of things like abuse, uh, neglect, and usually that's carried out over a long period of time by people that you know, so partners or loved ones, those sorts of things, you know, you are more likely to experience a traumatic stress response, um, but it's not necessarily the case all the time. So to be diagnosed with traumatic stress, you actually also need to have the symptoms that are associated with it. So things like intrusive thoughts or avoidance of anything that reminds the person of the event, uh, things like negative changes in their moods or the or thoughts, differences in their arousal. So these are things like being really jumpy um, and, and easily startled. And all of these things need to persist for longer than a month and they also need to impair functioning. So what is the risk of TikTok content that might not get these ideas quite right? Talking about trauma on TikTok is kind of this double-edged sword, right? Because it's not all bad. So talking about mental health generally, uh, what trauma looks like, uh, some common symptoms, that can actually be incredibly valuable. Uh, it can reduce you know, negative stigma. It can uh, validate people's experiences. And without talking about these things, we, we do run the risk of encouraging people to stay silent when something is going wrong or when someone's really struggling. So it's not all bad, but we also know that a traumatic stress response and, and in particular tra uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, the diagnosis is incredibly complex and it's really individualised. So I think on TikTok in particular, but also in other social media apps, Trauma is presented in this overly simplistic way. And sometimes we are also kind of fed misinformation about what the symptoms are and what sort of treatments are appropriate and available to people. There's plenty of personal stories of trauma on TikTok, but also videos with advice or even clips that claim to guide people towards a diagnosis. If you feel X or Y, well, then that's a trauma response. If you're not on TikTok... This is what that can all sound like. Do you ever wonder why you can talk about your trauma as if you're reading the weather report? You won't stand up for yourself because you're too nice and you don't want to rock the boat. This is called the fawn response. It's a trauma response. When you're dissociated from a memory, there's a reason. It's because when you were at that age or whenever it happened, however old you were or not, the experience was so extreme that your brain said, nope, we're not going to go there. We're going to numb that shit out. We're not going to even look at that. And we're going to forget it temporarily. But your body doesn't forget. Your nervous system doesn't forget. This last one caught Dr. Woolard's attention. Of course, boiling down quite complex psychological conditions in a relatively short social media post can be difficult because you lose a lot of the detail. So some of the research that I do looks into, the, into dissociation and what it looks like across the lifespan. And we know that Dissociation is actually on a spectrum. There's the, the clinical end of dissociation where you have a dissociative disorder. And this, of course, is very related to, to trauma and in particular uh, sexual abuse early in childhood. But lots of people experience non-clinical dissociation. And the way that I like to explain what um, dissociation is, is lots of people experience it when they're driving home from work. They kind of zone out and they get home and they think, how did I get here? You know, and that's a very normal experience. And that 
that technically is dissociation. It doesn't mean that you've experienced trauma. It means you've probably had a big day and you're thinking about other things. And I guess she's there's something quite appealing about her presentation. She's got quite a nice voice. It's a black and white video. Yeah. And you know what? When I did a bit of digging on her on her profile, she's a great creator and she's she's most definitely an influencer. She has lived experience, which of course is, you know, can be very valid and and reassuring for people. But she's speaking from the stance of an expert, which she is not. And what really worried me was when I was looking through her comments, uh, so people, you know, are obviously relating quite heavily to her video. And I've actually saw a few comments, you know, saying that, oh, I don't remember this part of my childhood. I must have been uh, traumatised. And then the creator is actually sending them links to her most recent book that they should read. Then there's content that grabs attention because it talks about what can be pretty common experiences and links them to trauma. People who are highly observant often went through childhood trauma. Maybe they notice a new shirt you're wearing or that you changed your hair slightly. Or maybe they can tell you're in a slightly different mood, even if you haven't noticed it yet yourself. I think a lot of people uh, are told these, these kind of really general personality traits that you know a lot of people have. And they relate really heavily to that. And it has them questioning their own reality. I think a lot of people have great attention to detail and they haven't experienced trauma. And then on the flip side, people who have experienced trauma may not be super observant. And it it was quite interesting on this TikTok video in particular. I actually looked through the comments and people were stating, why am I like this, but I don't have trauma? Do I have trauma? These are just a few examples, but Dr. Woolard is particularly concerned about some of the money-making schemes she sees on the app. I've seen a lot of people trying to monetize on this, particularly on TikTok. I've seen quite a few videos where, you know, you click through someone's link and they, they've got like a 12-step course to overcome your trauma, which is just completely inappropriate. In some ways, it's not difficult to understand why trauma is a sticky concept. The way we use the word these days can capture a lot of the difficulty in how we live, especially for people in marginalised groups. And of course, this kind of content can help people feel seen, find community. I'm really similar to a lot of other queers, I guess, who like found their way onto TikTok during the start of the pandemic in 2020. Sid is a social worker in Sydney. I had already come out as um, non-binary and as queer, but I started to see it reverberate back at me through the algorithm. I just went really deep, really quick in finding people who were similar to me, finding communities that were similar to me, watching people sort of thrive, but also watching people share uh, deeply personal experiences. But for me, especially being so new to the queer community and being so shut away from everyone, um, finding community in that was really lovely, interesting, strange. It was a hard time, but it was so interesting to be so disconnected and yet so connected all at the same time. I wonder too, when I'm watching more of the kind of story time content or when people are talking and exploring their own personal trauma on camera, there's a discomfort there too, maybe a bit of voyeurism. It's so interesting um, what keeps me there with personal stories and knowing that maybe in that moment I'm not a voyeur is that I'm a witness to someone's experience. And I think that that's something that's really not acknowledged as 
being as important as what it is. A lot of work has been done to help Australians become more literate around mental health, to find the words that might capture how they're feeling, to encourage people to find help. But that's not always possible. Accessing services, mental health services, uh, GPs, um, it's just so inaccessible at the moment. I think it's really important to consider the ways that we find connection and support for these kinds of things when it's not actually available. It's not financially or physically available within our communities. But having a platform where you're able to see people who look like you for the first time, and especially thinking about anyone who's non-white, anyone who isn't really represented in the media, you know, gay, trans, with a disability, like these are communities that aren't given much physical representation. So to see them on spaces like that and to see them to deliver information around therapy or like mental health, it's just interesting. Like which, like, yeah, I think people would have been going on TikTok anyway, um, but it's interesting that it, for some people it's far more than just the little dances. This opening up of the language around mental health also means there's a tussle over who gets to define the boundaries of diagnosis, which this kind of TikTok content can really play into. I'm someone who inherently just really believes in self-diagnosis. I think it's really valid. I think a lot of people actually don't have the ability um, to seek formal diagnosis a lot of the time. And there are different barriers there for different people, whether it's finances, whether it's um, stereotypes on who that disorder may be more attributed to. And I guess that's really hard too, because when you first kind of find it, it can become kind of everything at first and it can take a long time to sort of deconstruct whether we just want to be that label or we want to be more than that. Then there's the possibility that the word trauma becomes overstretched, that it becomes, some people worry, just another category. Um, and it seems, you know, along with how to make money or how to get a hot body or, uh, you know, uh, how to get a nice car, it seems like mental health is one of the main kind of categories of what people make TikToks about. This is P. E. Muskowitz, a writer who runs a newsletter called Mental Health that focuses on the intersection of society, the internet and our brains. I think that the internet kind of encourages categorization uh, and social media especially encourages categorization. Um, you know, we're talking about these vast, vast platforms where millions upon millions of strangers are interacting with each other. So I think that's really overwhelming to most people. And by categorizing themselves, whether it's through something like astrology, which is another really popular thing on the internet, right? Or a mental health diagnosis, you kind of find a community where you have theoretically like-minded people. Lately, they've written about how the internet's obsession with diagnosis might be distracting us from what's really going on. So I think mental health and especially the way diagnosis works on the internet is less about, you know, a kind of DSM version. That is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. What diagnosis is or, or what uh, a qualified psych psychiatrist or psychologist would say, and more about a kind of categorization in the same way that astrology is, where you're looking for, for people that you relate to and trying to find reasons that you relate to each other. Talk me through how you think about it. Is this dangerous? Is this frivolous? Is this helpful? I think it's all of the above, dangerous and frivolous and helpful. I think, you know, in our current world, diagnoses are important insofar as they allow people to find care 
without a diagnosis of ADHD, you can't get prescribed medications that might help you without a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. You can't necessarily get insurance or your healthcare system to cover therapy or, or medications. So diagnosis is necessary in that societal context, but I think in a way it's also limiting. When we start to blame everything on our diagnoses, then I think we remove a lot of the nuance of our lives and we also remove a lot of the, the causal factors for the reasons we feel the way we do. So when I see people online talking about everyone with ADHD procrastinates until 3 p.m. because they can't do their work because there's something wrong with their brains, that kind of makes me sad because in my view, the reason that many people procrastinate is because they don't like their jobs and they feel stuck in their lives and they feel like they don't have enough off time and they feel kind of isolated and uh, you know without meaning in their in their work. So by turning everything into a diagnosis, I think we kind of end up blaming ourselves and our brains instead of these like very real material external factors that are causing us to feel bad or distracted or anxious or manic or whatever it might be. After all, there is a lot to feel bad about right now. By talking about trauma and diagnosis in the way that we do, we kind of lose the, the societal implications of why people are, you know, some people are more depressed or some people are more suicidal. If we accept that uh, ADHD or psychosis or whatever diagnosis is inherent to the brain, then we have to reckon with, well, why is it more inherent in LGBTQ people or people of color uh, or poor people? And, you know, to me, the answer is obvious. It's because those people experience a world that is harsher to them, that is less livable for them, and that that affects their, their brains and the, the ways they live and their responses to it. But when we talk about these as kind of universal things or things that you either have or you don't, we, we lose all of that societal perspective. And that to me is, is one of the worst parts of all of this is that we're no longer talking about the ways in which our world, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, are unequally affecting us. PE explored some of these issues in an essay called The Buzzfeedification of Mental Health. I started writing this essay because I found this really interesting tidbit that the founder of BuzzFeed wrote this essay in college that basically said that as, as capitalism continues, as our economic system becomes more and more fractured, we'll essentially have to keep creating smaller and smaller groups of identity in order to, to kind of sell to those identities. So, you know, in the age of uh, the radio or, or, you know, when there was only two television stations, everyone had a kind of shared uh, identity through the media. But as, as new technologies are developed, that identity becomes more and more fractured. And now we have our own algorithmically curated feeds and our, uh, you know, and a thousand channels of television and, and all the rest. And so identity becomes much, much more specific. And so I took that and I thought, well, isn't it interesting that at the same time that this fracturing of identity is happening, we're seeing more and more of this kind of diagnosis culture that on the internet, we decide what categories we're going to be placed in. That if you look at, at people's social media bios, you see, you know, their 
their gender identity descriptor and their diagnoses and you know uh, what they identify as in, in a variety of ways and that I think that can't be separated this kind of micro identity uh, creation can't be separated from how fractured we all are in this media environment. I mean, people who have all those details in their bios might argue it's also about finding community or like showing, you know, if somebody looks at their bio and sees that they share similar identities, they might feel less alone or some kinship or community or awareness raising. You know, I'm trans, I'm non-binary, I search out other trans, non-binary, queer, whatever people who um, I can be in community with. But I think what happens is that if we only get to that point, if we only become defined by these micro identities, then we miss out on a lot of the nuance and meaning of life. And I think that's kind of where we're stuck right now on the internet is that people have said, you know, I have trauma, I have ADHD, I have depression, I have X, Y, and Z identity or diagnosis. Now it's like, okay, so what? Like, what? where do we go from here? And I think that's an open-ended question. Um, and I think we're starting to see some some kind of backlash to that culture. I've seen a lot more memes and TikToks recently of, uh, of people kind of poking fun at this micro-identity culture that we've developed on the internet. Um, and perhaps people are starting to realize that, that yes, these identities can help us find people who are like ourselves, but that that's not enough to create meaning in our lives. That's another thing about the internet and social media. Wait long enough and there's a backlash to the backlash. I think it's a good sign that people are maybe getting sick of this way of discussing mental health in this very generalized way. I think that people don't know where to go next because, you know, perhaps the next step is acknowledging that simply making a TikTok video is not enough to help heal yourself from trauma uh, or that liking a thousand TikTok videos that relate to your experience in some way does not actually help all that much. You know, in my opinion, the solutions to the ways in which we're all struggling are much more systemic. We need healthcare that provides, you know, adequate mental health care. Um, we should be able to live lives that that are less quote unquote traumatic, right? But it's much easier to kind of just endlessly nod your head saying, yes, 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 I relate, I relate, I relate, than it is to say, okay, now what do we do about it? Are you ever making your own? Uh, no. <laughs> Perhaps I've had a few like saved on private, but not keen to distribute publicly at the moment. Psychology student Grace Chen, who we heard from earlier, is cautious when it comes to posting her own TikToks. How come? Yeah, I have some lovely lockdown TikToks doing dance trends. Just wouldn't want people in real life to see me. That's especially true when it comes to making mental health content of her own. Yeah, I feel like definitely I could record some psychology related TikToks, but at the same time, I don't want to be, I don't want to run the risk of accidentally misinforming people on TikTok. I am only in my first year as an undergraduate student. We shouldn't ignore the idea that social media can be a really positive place for some people to find, I don't know, I guess some sort of reassurance and, and community, particularly when the world is kind of burning around us at the moment. But we also don't want people to ignore if they have issues functioning in, in real life 
because they have got some sort of, you know, community support online. We can have it both ways, right? That we can use the tools available to us. We can identify however we feel we need to identify and find community through that and healing through that. But that we can also say this isn't enough, that we need a better understanding of our lives. We need more connection to each other. We need to go beyond labels and talk about what's actually happening in our lives. We can have both. That's P.E. Moskovitz, writer of the Mental Health Newsletter. You also heard from psychology student Grace Chen, social worker Sid, and Dr. Alex Willard from the Telethon Kids Institute. By the way, we reached out to two of the TikTokers whose clips featured in this episode. One declined to comment, the other didn't get back to us in time for our deadline. This episode was reported by Ariel Bogle and produced by Rose Kerr. Our sound engineer was Beth Stewart. That's it for All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kajar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and I love digging into how our minds work, especially when it comes to work. If you want to know more about the psychology of the workplace and how to do your best work, check out my podcast, This Working Life. Each week, experts in the world of work and business share their ideas, experiments and failures that you can apply to your own career. We're cheaper than therapy and more fun than LinkedIn. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.